Hi, I'm Dennis Hester, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Church Watauga, and we are grateful that you have tuned in to listen to these messages, either through our podcast or on our website. And as you listen to these, our prayer is that you would hear the Lord speak to you from His Holy Word. If you're interested in learning more about the church, you can get on our website at fbcwatauga.org. From there, there's a place where you can plan a visit, you can learn more about our beliefs. You can also request prayer through the prayer request page. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We'd love to get to know you. The most important thing that I'd communicate to you is as you listen to God's Word, that you find a place to get plugged into a local congregation, whether it's here at First Baptist or another local church where you live. If you'd like information or would like us to help you find a church home, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. And you can contact us through our Facebook page. So God bless you as you listen to His Word, and may the Lord encourage you in your walk. It's good to be here to worship with you again and uh, sit out here in these new chairs. You notice that there are no recliners. Uh, There is a reason for that. Uh, No sleeping in here. Now, some of you at home, uh, I understand that that's one of the reasons some of you are still at home is because you decided that couch or that recliner feels good. Uh, These are nice, comfortable chairs now, so it's a little bit easier for you to come back. Uh, Still won't be any sleeping in here, I hope, but we'll work on that. I wanted to share a little bit of a testimony about the chairs. Uh, you know, we, we've been excited about this. Uh, the, the Lord's been moving this process forward one step at a time. This was the third of four phases in, in updating and renovating the sanctuary. We've called the, the sanctuary facelift. And uh, uh, the chairs, we actually ordered them back at the very end of April, the last day of April, with hopes that they would be coming in sometime in maybe late June or, or early July. And uh, that date kind of kept getting pushed back by the manufacturer. And we actually had heard that they were going to be in the last week of July. And we're kind of making arrangements to go pick them up uh, a week ago. And we thought that we'd have them in here for service last Sunday. But there's a, there's a caveat to that. The, the, the church had decided that we were going to do the, each step. We are going to do it as we could pay for it. So as we move forward, uh, we would only uh, do each step as the money was in the bank. Well, last Sunday, the money wasn't in the bank yet. In fact, we still needed $500 to completely pay off all of the chairs. And so interesting uh, that just as we, we kind of announced that, let people know last Thursday or Friday, of course, the money came in on Sunday We got the call Monday or Tuesday from the manufacturer that the chairs were finished, and Brian and Matthew were able to go pick those up, I think, on Wednesday. And so just as as God always does, his timing was perfect. The money was in the bank on Monday morning. The chairs were ready and available that afternoon. Not a minute sooner or not a minute late. God's timing was perfect, and it is awesome to be able to see God at work like that, and I just consider one of the, that, that like one of those other little reminders that God is alive, and he is, he's real, and he's working among us to accomplish his purposes. So today, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. Last week, we focused on the the first 13 verses of John and talked to, a a lot of our focus was on the deity of Christ, that when Christ walked on this earth, he was fully God. He was God in the beginning. 
He was creator God. He was not created. Jesus himself was God. And he was God when he walked on this earth. He was God when he dies and rose again. And he is God seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And Christ is still God and will be God when he returns in the future. He was, is, and always will be God. Today's focus is going to be different because today's John focuses in verse 14 on the humanity of Christ, that Christ became flesh. And in Christ, in his flesh, we learn some things about God. I want to introduce today just a little bit differently then, because I want you to imagine that you and, and, and your wife go home from church, and you go into the house, and, and you walk in, you go, man, it's, it's hot in here. Your wife says, no, it's cold in here. Well, what you're really saying is, I feel like it's hot, and the other person is saying, I feel like it's cold. You're gauging temperature based on your own reality, what you feel like it is. But imagine you instead said something like this. Well, what temperature do you think it is? One of you says, well, I think it's 68 degrees in here. And the other one says, well, I think it's 72 in here. And so you go look at the thermometer, and the thermometer says it's 74 in here, right? What is the temperature? What happens in our culture is you have two different types of people. You have those who are objectivist and those who are relativist. The objectivist will say, well, the thermostat says it's 74. It must be 74. All right, it's 74. The relativist will say, that thermostat's wrong. It's, it's colder than that in here. I don't care what that thermostat says. I don't believe that thermostat. Well, we live in an age right now that is, <laughs> that is dominated by people who accept a relativist view of truth. But that's not new to our age. In John chapter 18, Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus a question. He says, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you say that I am a king. I was born for this and I have come into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate, I can imagine, kind of under his breath, shakes his head and says, what is truth? And Pilate, right after that, walks out on his portico and proclaims that he believes that Jesus is innocent and there's no reason for Jesus to be put to death. Pilate has his own view of truth. But Pilate also recognizes that the mob, the Jewish mob that's outside his temple, has their own view of truth. They're shouting, he's a blasphemer. They believe he ought to be killed. They believe he's guilty, not innocent. And so Pilate says, well, I'm washing my hands of it because I believe he's innocent. But if you think he's guilty, here. And he turns Jesus over to the mob to be crucified. In that picture, there's a couple different views of truth. There is Pilate's view. There is the mob's view. And then, then there is absolute truth. Jesus was the king. Jesus was the son of God. In fact, Jesus was truth. 
What happens is oftentimes those who are the loudest or those where the majority proclaims a particular truth, that is the truth that becomes accepted. God's word warns us about that very issue. God says there is truth. There is right, there is wrong. There is truth and there is reality. And in Christ, God set out to show us what is true. Read with me in John chapter one, verse 14 through 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side. He has revealed him. It's a beautiful passage. I want to give you a couple kind of uh, overarching thoughts from this passage before we move forward. First one is this. In this passage, you see John writing from after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In this passage, you note that, uh, that he says that Jesus is the one and only son down in, in uh, verse 18, the one who is himself at the Father's side. So John the writer of the gospel witnessed all of the acts of Jesus. He witnessed all of these signs that he's gonna be writing about and he believes, he understands now that Jesus who rose again is seated at the right hand of the Father. So he's writing from a perspective, you know, we're reading the introduction, but he's writing from a perspective after Christ died. You also see that in how he addresses this, uh, the, the, the person and the work of John the Baptist as well. When in last week's lesson, when we were talking about the deity of Christ, we saw a parenthetical statement about this is the one who John pointed to. Well, John, the writer of the gospel, refers to John the Baptist again here. There's a reason for that. John the Baptist had a lot of followers. John the Baptist was a great prophet who came from God. And there were many who were apparently still seeking to follow the teachings of John the Baptist. And so John, the writer of the gospel, wants to emphasize that and say, you need to remember, folks, that John the Baptist himself said that Jesus is the one who you're supposed to turn to. John the Baptist himself is the one who said Jesus is the true shepherd. He's the one that you need to be following. And so he includes that statement in here, particularly in his time, those people who he's writing to, so that they would understand that Jesus is the one that they need to turn their attention to. If they're truly followers of John the Baptist, they're now gonna take their attention off of John the Baptist and put their attention on Jesus who died and rose again and who is the son who John the Baptist was pointing to. And so it's important for us to kind of understand that as, as we begin to walk through this. And also, you'll find in this passage, John eventually, uh, down in verse 17, for the first time, connects the name of Jesus with the logos, 
with the word. Up until this point in the prologue, you know, we, we read in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And it seemed very obvious and very clear that John was identifying Jesus as the word, this, the, the, the logos, this great universal truth, this philosophical idea of, of all that the universe contains and all that the universe is wrapped up in the Greek idea of logos. And so when he, when he wrote in the beginning was the word, we understand that he was talking about Jesus. But in verse 17, he makes that direct connection. He names Jesus Christ. And so he kind of brings all that together. And this is why when you get down to verse 18, that that seems to be the end of John's introduction. This is the, the end of the prologue that we've preached over last week and this week. And so begin with me then in verse 10. The other thing that you'll see, I mean in verse 14. The thing that you'll see here is verse 14 is the primary statement that John wants to make. Verse 15 is that parenthetical statement about John the Baptist that we talked about. And then verses 16, 17, and 18 are kind of John's commentary on verse 14. So the truth that we want to look at today as we walk through this is really wrapped up in verse 14. And then it is expressed or it is explained out in the following verses. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory. In Christ, we get to see, we get to behold the fullness of God, the glory of God. This word glory is important to John and you'll see John use this word later on in his gospel and in fact, In John chapter 17, where you see Jesus at at the end of his life, he has finished his teaching with the the disciples in the upper room. They have moved into the Garden of Gethsemane. and, And just as Jesus begins to pray, the first words that he speaks in the Garden of Gethsemane are this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He goes on to say in verse three of of chapter 17, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God, the one whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Jesus, as he is about to go to the cross, cries out to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Let them see. Glorify your son. Let him see your full glory. Let him see all that's about to happen. And yet we know that the next thing that's gonna happen is Jesus is gonna be arrested. He's gonna be beaten. He's gonna be mocked. He's gonna be crucified and he is gonna die. And yet it is in the cross that we get to see the glory of God. And so in John, John writing from the future Telling the story in verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. In Christ, we get to see God in his full glory. The word glory sometimes is misleading to us in the English language because we tend to think of glory as those things that are just beautiful those things that are wonderful, those things that, are, that make us happy or feel good about something. But ultimately, the, the glory is, is better defined as, as the, the 
attributes of something, the, the, the clear expressed attributes of some object. And so, for instance, I used an illustration in the first service of the glory of the sun. The glory of the sun, we would say, is the light that it gives us. The glory of the sun might even be uh, the, the, the things that we can't see about the sun that causes plants to grow, that provide food for, for our nourishment. But the glory of the sun is also the heat that it provides to warm the earth. And certainly the glory of the sun as it provides heat is a good thing. In December, in January. But we don't necessarily consider it a good thing in the middle of August when the, the heat from the sun is scorching the earth. And, and you know, here in Texas where it might be 102, 103, 105 degrees. And so the, the, the glory of the sun is certainly positive in so many ways, but it, it also carries a negative connotation. So you, you get to see the, the, the glory, you get to see the sun in all of its glory when you step outside. You get to experience the heat, you get to experience the, the light. So glory is not just what we necessarily would consider the good thing. And that's why I think it's, you get this incredible picture here when Jesus is about to go to the cross when he says the hour has come. And we'll, we'll spend some time on that phrase as we walk through the gospel of John in coming weeks because that's one of the themes in John. And there, there's times when Jesus uh, says something and, and the crowds want to arrest him, they want to kill him, they try to stone him to death, they try to throw him off a cliff and the scripture says, but his hour had not yet come. What hour are they talking about? It's the hour that takes place at the cross. And so when you get to John chapter 17 and Jesus says the hour has come, glorify your son. Jesus is talking about the cross. And yet we might, we, we, we would a whole lot rather consider three days later, the resurrection when the, when the stones rolled back and Jesus steps out of the grave. We'd a whole lot rather cry out that that's glorious. But I believe that scripture also teaches us that the cross of Christ is glorious because it's in the cross that we see the fullness of what Christ came to do that he came to save us. And so we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The first thing that I want you to, to notice here in this specifics in this passage, is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became flesh. He didn't just put on flesh, but in some very real way, he was fully human, like you and I are. Just as he's fully God, and John said last week that the whole time he was on this earth, he was God, he's also fully human. Now, I, I talked to you about this last week. My mind cannot comprehend that. How can he be fully God and be fully human at the same time? I don't know. But I've decided not to base truth on what I think about it or what I feel about it. I want to base the, what I believe to be true on what God's word says about it. And God's word says that he became flesh and pitched his tent among us. The word that's used there is a, is a verb, actually, that, that means to tabernacle. He tented among us. He set up his residence among us. Now, certainly, the word that John uses there is a word that indicates that it was going to be temporary. Jesus always was, Jesus always will be. Jesus took on flesh temporarily. 
He pitched his tent among us. But that's not all that different from the way our bodies are described, is it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says there's coming a day when this tent's going to be folded up. And, and, and the, the person that, that God created who's inside this tent is going gonna, is gonna to live on even though the tent itself is going to die. It's going to wither. It's going to be put down. It's going to be folded and set aside. Jesus took on flesh just like we carry flesh, just like we're flesh. And so he came to dwell among us. And certainly the Jews who were reading this would, would think back to God's presence in a very real way with them in the, in the desert. When they were commanded to establish a tabernacle, to build a tent that God would dwell in among them where God lived in their midst, in their presence. But Jesus did it not just by dwelling among them, he became like us when he took on flesh. And so we behold the glory of God in, in Christ in the flesh. We behold the glory of God in Christ as he comes to dwell among us. And he was further described here as the one and only. The Greek word is very clear here. He is the only Son of God, the one and only who came, the one and only of the Father. There is no other. As Christians, we cannot accept the idea of synchronistic religion. That is the idea that certainly Christianity is a good way to go, but you could also you know, try Buddhism, or you could also try Hinduism, or you could try some other religious uh, uh, avenue that, that they're all kind of on the same plane. They're not. Because there is, there's one, Jesus was one and only. There was no other son sent from God. There was no other God who took on human flesh to dwell among us. Jesus is the one and only begotten of the Father. There is no other. He is our hope. He is the only one who came to put on full display who God is, what God would look like in the flesh, what God expects, Jesus was the one and only, one of a kind. There is no other like him. And so we worship him, and, and ultimately there's going to come a time where the Father says, Scripture says that the Father's going to lift up the name of Christ, where he's the only one who's going to be worshiped, because he is the one and only of the Father. And then he says in this little phrase, and this is where I want to spend the rest of the time, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. This is where we begin to struggle in our, in our religion. It's where we begin to struggle in our philosophies. It's where we begin to struggle oftentimes in how we, how we talk about God with other people. Because we tend to fall on one side or the other of this duality. In the first service, I referred to it as a dichotomy. It's really not, because these two ideas are not at odds. They're, they're, they're a dualistic view of who Christ is. And these two words represent something that is meaningful. In Christ, we see the full grace of God. But in Christ, we also see the full truth from God. And you can't separate them. They are, they are together, inextricable, because if you want to understand who God is and the glory of God, you cannot just simply believe that God 
is a loving God, and, and God just accepts everything that we do, and, and that God is, is, is a God just of love and compassion. Yes, he is. John, in the first letter that he wrote to the church, said, God is love. And so certainly, God is love. God is, this idea of grace equates to the idea of God's mercy and God's love and God's compassion and God's empathy. And certainly, God is a God of grace. But God is also a God of truth. And in truth, we see God's justice and God's righteousness and God's unchanging law. And I don't mean law like the legalism that, that we get from the Old Testament. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit. I'm gonna talk about when God says something is true, it is true. When God says it is right, it is right. When he says it's good, it's good. When he says it is sin, it is sin. And so in Christ, we see the fullness of God's grace and we see the fullness of God's truth. And those, those come together in Christ. And you see them put on display in Christ where he, will, he shows incredible love and compassion in John chapter eight to the woman who's caught in adultery. And yet when she stands up, he looks her in the eye and he says, and go and sin no more. What you were doing was sin, stop it. Repent and turn away. And so in Christ you see Mercy and righteousness. You see grace and truth. You see love and you see judgment. In Christ, you see both. And, and you don't get one without the other because in Christ, you have the fullness of the Godhead put on full display for us to see in all of his glory. Not just some of his characteristics, not just the part of his character that we like, or that feels good to us, but you see all of his glory. And so Jesus personifies grace. If you want to get a picture of what God's grace looks like, look to Jesus. In, in John chapter, uh, verse 16, he says, Indeed, in Christ we've received grace upon grace from his fullness. Jesus' life overflowed with grace. He overflowed with mercy. And, and Jesus expressed to everyone who was open to listen to him with a, with a humble heart, it was repentant, and it didn't matter whether they were the, the tax gatherer or the woman caught in adultery or, or even Nicodemus, the Pharisee. It didn't matter if you were religious or not. What matters is that you came to Jesus with an open heart and an honest question and were willing to be open and receptive of his grace and truth. And Jesus expressed grace and love and mercy to all who would come. But Jesus also put on display the truth of, of God. It was in Christ it, it, that we see the law made perfect, that we see God's righteousness fulfilled. And so when you look at verse 17, it says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is not speaking of the law in negative terms here. Oftentimes in our Christian worldview, we tend to think law bad, grace good, right? Old Testament bad, negative. New Testament good, positive. 
But that's not where John's coming from. God, out of his grace and mercy and love, gave the law to Moses so that people could begin to see his glory and could begin to could understand his glory and see his righteousness. But also through the law, understand his forgiveness. That they could see what sin was, but they could also see that sin had a cost, that it was gonna cost something. And so in, in the law that God gave to Moses, it wasn't, it, this is not to invoke a negative image of the law, it's just the opposite. But in Christ, we get to see all of his glory. We get to see his grace and his truth. In verse 17, you see that phrase appear again. Why is that? Because in Christ, we get to see God's mercy fully on display at the same time we see God's judgment fulfilled. Matthew read it a little while ago from Romans chapter five, where God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace was put fully on display at the cross. But so was justice. So was judgment. You want to truly see what mercy is? Look to the cross. When Jesus looks down from the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But you want to get a picture of the penalty for sin? Close your eyes and listen as you hear the hammer hit the nails that are driven through the wrist of our Savior who didn't deserve to die because he took those nails for my sin and for your sin. Our sin has an incredible cost, but Jesus paid the price. Yes, mercy Grace is on display at the cross. But so is God's judgment and God's righteousness, God's justice. And when we deny either side, when we deny the truth that God puts on display, that, that he gives us in his word, or when, and when we deny or we deny his mercy and his grace, we're denying a part of God's glory. Jesus came to show us the glory of God. There's a a great passage where Jesus speaks to this in in John chapter 8 when he says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In John 17, that same prayer I mentioned earlier where he began by saying, glorify your son. He said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. And in Christ, we see the truth put on display. And yet, we continue to live in a world that says truth is what you make of it. Truth is what you believe it to be. Aristotle writes of a, of a discussion between Protagoras and Socrates. And in that discussion, uh, summarizes his thought when he says, 
you have your truth, but I have my truth. This idea of a relativistic view of truth is not new to our culture. It goes all the way back before the Greeks. And that's what John is dealing with here. If you want to know the truth, look to Christ. Paul deals with this issue in Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to read all of this section, but from, chapter, from verse 18 of Romans 1 down through the end of the chapter, you see Paul fleshing this out. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godless and unrighteous people who have by their unrighteousness done what? Suppressed the truth. Verse 22, it says, Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And verse 25, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is to be praised forever. For this reason, God gave them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Their men, in the same way, left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for other men. Men committing shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. If that does not describe the road that our culture has gone down by denying the truth of God's word, I don't think anything else does. Imagine, in my example earlier, there's not a lot of consequences for it. You and your Spouse may get in an argument over what the thermostat needs to be set at or whether you need to buy a new one with a better thermometer in it. But imagine a man who had just turned 50 who believes that he's a woman, is transitioning to become a woman. You don't have to imagine very far. This is happening in our culture all around us now. He walks into the doctor's office and the doctor meets with this biological male and says, uh, you know, you need to, uh, it's time for you to go ahead and get your prostate exams and make sure that you don't have prostate cancer. And he says, oh, no, no, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. I need to have a mammogram. And the doctor says, mm, no, you know, still biologically, you're, you're more at risk of prostate cancer than you are breast cancer, and so you, you need to go ahead and have a prostate exam. And the guy denies the truth, and he says, no, 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 I'm a woman. I've decided I'm a woman. That's my view of myself. And you need to call me a woman. And the doctor says, okay, you're a woman. He comes up with some way to give the guy a mammogram. And two years later, the guy finds out he has, or the woman, finds out he, she has prostate cancer and dies. Relativism leads to life and death situations. Pilate said Jesus is innocent, but that's only the way I feel. You, you Jews, the mob, you say he's guilty. So y'all go ahead and crucify him. If that's what the, the majority thinks, if that's what the mob shouts, crucify him, crucify him, then that's your reality. So certainly he must deserve to die. 
Sadly, we live in an age right now where truth is being determined not by an objective standard. Truth is being determined by whoever, whatever the majority or maybe even a minority who yells the loudest has to say. That's dangerous. And it's deadly. It's deadly to individuals. It's deadly to cultures. I think we've been fed a lie that there is a systemic racial injustice against a particular race in our culture right now, perpetuated by police officers. There may be still some racial injustice, but the evidence, the objective evidence does not suggest that it comes from police officers or that it's even rooted in police officers. The, the evidence doesn't show it when you sit down and look at the evidence. And yet, over a thousand police officers in the last two months have been wounded and several killed because of a belief in something that the mob has shouted the loudest. This issue of right and wrong, whether truth is objective or subjective, is not just about philosophy. It'll cost someone their life. If you wanna know the truth, turn to God's word and look to Jesus. You'll get to see both the mercy of God and the righteousness of God. You'll see the full glory of God put on display in Jesus Christ. And the most dangerous thing about relativism is it won't just cost somebody their life, it'll cost many their soul. Many will die and spend eternity separated from God because they'll say, well, I don't feel like that's right. I don't, I don't like what that has to say. I, I, I believe some of scripture because I like what some of it has to say, but there's parts I don't like. It won't just cost people their lives. It'll cost people their eternal life. God's word is true. And truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you accept God's word as true, you accept Christ as the truth, you'll find in him eternal life. And the, the clearest place to look to see the balance of this truth and grace, mercy and justice, is at the cross. Because it was all put on display when Jesus paid the price for your sin and my sin. You have to first believe it, profess it, and then receive that truth into your life. And when you do that, the promise of God's word is that you gain eternal life. If, if you're watching online from home, I can see who's before me, but I, don't, I can't see who may be watching, sitting in your living rooms. And so if, if you would say, Pastor, I've, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I, I'd like to know more. I'd like to learn more about Christ. Or maybe you, you would have to say, I've, I've, uh, I've never received Christ as my Savior. I'd like to put my faith in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I'd encourage you to reach out to, to Kevin or I. You can reach out through 
uh, you, you see it online there, fbcwatauga.org slash prayer. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you. We also would, uh, are, are still open, though the offices are open during the week for, uh, for visits, for appointments, if you'd like to come and talk about where you are in your walk with the Lord. But if you're here today and, and you're not sure that you have, you, you don't know for, if you were to die today, you don't know for sure that you'd go to heaven, that you'd have eternal life. I want to plead with you today. To, to do the same thing. We're not having our traditional invitations. Matthew and the praise and worship team are, are gonna come up and lead us in a closing hymn. But because of the, the COVID pandemic, we're not having uh, people come down front and, and, and so that we can pray with you here. But if you'd like to make an appointment or you'd like to talk with Kevin or I, please reach out through our, our, our website and send us an email as we'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to, especially if you're not sure about where you are on your walk with Christ, We'd like to help you gain some certainty there that you might know for sure. So Matthew's gonna come and lead us. Would you stand with us as we join together in this closing song?